Hello, welcome to a brand new episode of the Churchology Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Combs. Today on the show, we get to talk to Jake Meter. Jake is the editor-in-chief of Mere Orthodoxy, an online magazine covering the Christian faith in the public square. And today we're diving into Jake's new book, What Are Christians For? Life Together at the End of the World. Let's dive in. All right, well, today on the show, we are excited to talk to, to talk to Jake Meter. Jake, how are you today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. Excellent, excellent. Jake, you have just released a book called What Are Christians For? Life Together at the End of the World. And I, I, I love that title. I would love to hear you uh, talk about uh, what that title means. Talk to us about what, what that means. What are Christians for? Mm. So it was something... Uh, Karen Pryor said in the foreword that I really liked was it can often help us to focus um, conversation and our understanding of just about anything by asking what its purpose is. And so that was kind of the thought around the title is we live in this time of fragmentation. Um, we live in a time of mass de-churching going on in the U.S. Um, and we live in a time where I think, especially if you're evangelical, there's an idea that what being evangelical means is basically you shop at Hobby Lobby and Chick-fil-A and you live out in the burbs. And like, it's this kind of sociological identifier that is detached from any kind of theological content or religious practice. Um, and that seems to have gotten worse as we have more and more people who don't even go to church identifying as evangelical now. Um, so what I wanted to do is try to just cut through a lot of that. I think a lot of these things become distractions and ask what um, God has for us to do in the world. What is his purpose in calling a people to himself? Um, and so that was kind of where the book ended up going. It wasn't necessarily where I anticipated it going at the start. Um, and I think the answer to that is that Christians are um, ambassadors of a kingdom that is coming, a kingdom that is in some sense already here. And as we live in the world, we can model an alternative way of living amongst ourselves, also amongst our neighbors um, for the glory of God and the good of our neighbor. Um, that's probably the tightest answer I can give to that question, um, which doesn't necessarily tread a ton of brand new ground. That's more where I kind of get into the nitty gritty in the book. Um, but Christians are for neighbors. I think they're, they glorify God through pouring themselves out for the people that God puts around them. Um, so that would be the kind of very short, concise answer to that question. Um, but obviously it's a long book, so there's a lot more that we could say. Yeah, in the book you talk about um, what you call the whole life approach to Christianity, and I would love to hear you unpack that. What do you mean by that, a whole life approach to Christianity? So the way I'd want to start it is, I think, by simply saying this. Um, if you are a Christian, you believe that there is one God who before the foundations of time, the world, anything, um, moved to create not out of necessity, 
um, not because he was lacking anything within himself, because he felt any experience of lack um, or absence. Um, he moved to create because of love. Um, and he created a world that reflected his own love, his own happiness, um, his own joy within himself. Um, and so we enter the world, and I, I sometimes find it helpful to kind of analogize this to being a parent. Um, there are parents who become parents because they feel a need. Um, you will sometimes hear stories, especially of abuse victims, who will become parents because they want someone to love them. Um, and that often is a very bad foundation for a parent-child relationship, because that child is not going to be able to fulfill all the things that are lacking in that parent. Um, in a healthy relationship, the parents aren't having children because they just desperately need, there's this, like, they're having children because it's the natural outgrowth of their relationship of love um, to their spouse. So that's kind of a creaturely imitation, I think, um, of the divine creative act. And so we enter this good, um, loving and healthy world and are called to follow God in it. And if you believe all of these things, that is the most important thing there is to know about the world. It is the most important thing there is to know about your purpose in the world, about what you're called to be and do. Um, and it's also a basis for deep hope because you are following the God who made all things, who is not surprised by evil, who has not encountered some great foe that he can't defeat. Um, we follow a God who's already conquered death and sin and hell. And so if all of these things are what should be central to who we are and how we engage in the world, how we relate to neighbors, um, how we relate to our cities, our work, wherever we go, um, we should not be anxious people. We should not be fearful people. Um, we should be marked by a generosity and a joy because we know that the God who made this world is good. He made a good world and we get to participate in it. Um, and we get to go out and do the things he calls us to do for his glory and the joy of our neighbors. Um, and I don't think that if you were to ask a lot of Christians, what's the most important thing about your life your common life and your participation in common life in the US, your participation in your neighborhood, in politics, um, in your work, what's the most important thing? I don't know that we would have, an, a lot of us would have that kind of answer. I think if you asked a lot of our non-Christian peers, what is the most important thing to Christians in their life together? I don't think that would be the answer we would get. I think the, the behaviors and the practices that we've taken up especially over, I think, the last five to six years, suggest a very deep fear. They suggest um, a kind of sense of anxiety that if X doesn't happen, everything will be over. Um, and so part of what I want to do is try and help draw people out of the kind of cycle of outrage and ideology and distraction and noise that's just ubiquitous in the US right now um, and try instead to draw people's attention to permanent things, um, 
to the things that God gives us for our good and the work that he gives us to do um, in obedience to him in response to what he's done for us. I love that picture. I, and and as, as I was reading the book and just even listening to you now, I wonder how does that image of this whole life Christianity, you know, so if Christians are for loving their neighbor, how does that mesh or I guess contrast with maybe the view that a lot of Christians have, because I think many Christians, and it's really hard to paint Christianity with a brush on a podcast, but <laughs> what are, you know, what are Christians for? A lot of people are going to say something to the effect of, well, they're to go to heaven. You know, it's, it's, this world is, is we want to get out of this world. And, and so many times there's this dichotomy in, you know, evangelicals where, the secular and the sacred and, and the world is viewed as something evil and bad. We got to get out of here, you know, and Jesus is going to get us out of here one day and, and not to deny, obviously, uh, eternity with God, not to deny, you know, I mean, salvation and heaven and all of that. But, but too many times we just, it seems as if that view of the, of whole life Christianity is missing for, for a lot of Christians. I mean, in your book, you're talking about Christians and, and the way they think about nature, you're talking about, you know, and, and the world and race and sexuality. And mm-hmm. too many times you, you don't hear a lot of Christian perspective on that. How do you think that, wh- wh- where do you think that I, I, is missing possibly for a lot of Christians, that view of whole life Christianity, when so many times the view is, oh, well, this world is bad. We got to get out of here. We need to escape it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think there's some theological things that are feeding into that it's like I grew up in a extremely dispensational um church and so like I remember the pastor like on the very rare occasion that care for the earth would even come up in church would just say well God's all going to burn it up anyway so who cares well that's a (laughs) that's a theological claim that he's making because of a misreading of what Peter is doing Mm -hmm. in one of his epistles um, and what he misses there is that the image that Peter's using is one of, he's using fire as an image of purification, not destruction. And he's likening it to the flood, which again, purified, but did not obliterate the world. And so he's just misreading Peter um, and making an error based on that bad reading of scripture. So there's theological issues that can feed into it. Um, I think there's also... I guess you could call them sociological issues um, where there's a certain way of, well, I'll put it this way. So I, I read a, a profile recently of Jerry Falwell Jr. in Vanity Fair. It got passed around a lot and anyone can read it online. Um, what struck me while reading it was that Falwell Jr.'s description of his religious life is almost non-existent. I mean, you kind of get the impression from just reading him in the interview um, and he shared the story favorably on social media afterwards so this was not a kind of like drive-by media hit piece thing like he said the reporter got him right um christian practice and discipleship was almost this kind of intrusion for him and he spoke of a kind of conversion experience from listening to rush limbaugh with far more zeal and enthusiasm than he ever does for his christian faith in the story. And so I think for a lot of Christians, there was a, the, the real, like the deepest commitments of their heart and their desires were shaped more by this kind of 
talk radio conservatism of which a kind of modified Christianity fit in as this kind of God and country evangelicalism. Um, but Christianity had to be modified to accommodate that stuff. Um, and so things about welcoming foreigners or things about God's heart for the poor, um, those things got pretty well backgrounded in a lot of these churches and a lot of these Christian circles. Um, I, I was joking with a friend earlier that I, I sincerely wonder if Mary were to pray the Magnificat in a lot of churches in the U.S. right now, what would happen? Because Mary talks about God sending the rich away empty um, and tearing down the proud and all of these things that I think if you played it for some Christians without context, they'd think it sounded like socialism or something. Um, there's this scene in a, a novel I love called Jaber Crow. It's this small town Kentucky barber and it's set in the, so the main character is born in the I think 1914 and he dies in the early 2000s and it's the story of his life. So there's the scene in the book where he's, um, it's the Vietnam War era and there's a man in his shop getting his hair cut and he's commenting on both the, the war and the protests. And he says something like, if we could just round up the socialists over there and the protesters over here and shoot them all, it'd all be to the good. Um, and there's this awkward silence in the barbershop. And then Jaber says to him, bless those who persecute you, love your enemies. I'm just quoting Christ to him. And the guy in his chair kind of is taken aback and stops and looks at him and goes, pardon me, where the hell did you get that? And Jaber looks at him and goes, Jesus Christ. And he goes, oh. <laughs> and then the final line mm. of the section is Jaber saying, it would have been a great moment in the history of Christianity, except I did not love this man. Um, mm. And so I think because of the, the way that, even, especially evangelical Protestantism has kind of linked up with conservative American culture, um, it's shaved off lots of edges of what's clearly there in scripture, what's clearly there throughout much of church history and how Christians thought about their responsibilities to their fellow Christians and to those outside the church um, because some of those ideas were not terribly convenient for people trying to live the type of lifestyle that a lot of white evangelicals have wanted to live for a long time. Um, and the way that a lot of that was just crystallized in that Falwell Jr. interview was really sad to me, but also very helpful. Because um, at this point, Falwell Jr. is not at liberty anymore. He has no incentive to pretend otherwise. And so he was just very frank about his relationship to his faith or lack thereof. And I think what worries me is that I think that's probably more common than we'd like to admit. I have, I have a friend who was a college pastor for years. And he would tell me that he could get the, the young men in his college group together for coffee during the week. And if he asked them about what they're reading in their Bible, about their prayer life, what God's teaching them, their relationship with God on a day-to-day -day basis, he could get them to talk for maybe two minutes. And that was it. If he asked them about Second Amendment stuff, they'd mm -hmm. go for an hour. Um, and so I think because of the very perverse relationship we've had to a lot of kind of 
cultural aspects of American life, especially white American life, um, it's had a very corrosive effect on the lives of individual Christians and the lives of a lot of churches, which are now trying to navigate all of these problems that have been created as a result of all this. Yeah, and could Sorry, you... Kind of rambling. It's rambling, but there's just so many different strands. No, oh, no, that's great. That's great, but because uh, I was going to ask, so could you could you unpack, maybe maybe address, and you do in the book, but could you talk about, so that, that relationship um, with... You know, you talk about politics and and uh, how it's shaped Christianity. What what has that? What has that? How has that changed Christianity? How have we had to modify Christianity to make that relationship? What are some things that you see uh, that that have happened? Um. Well, so an example I use in I believe it's in the introduction of the book is I talk about Frederick Douglass's words about what he called slave owner Christianity that are, he writes in the epigraph of his narrative, um, which is the story he wrote as still as a relatively young man about his escape from slavery in Maryland. Um, and he draws the contrast between the Christianity he encountered in scripture, which he loved. He called it the pure peaceable Christianity of Christ. Um, and the Christianity that he encountered as a slave in Maryland, where um, you would sit in church on Sunday with the man who beat you a few days before, um, who sometimes would do especially like just wantonly cruel things to the people he was now sitting with in church and didn't feel any sense of contradiction between that. Um, there's a, a story that we have, for example, um, of Robert E. Lee, who had a runaway slave, and when the slave was returned to him, he first ordered that the slave be whipped, and then um, they called it pickling, where you would pour a very salty brine on the wounds, which was extremely painful, um, and also had a way of making those scars more permanent. Um, that was what this man, many still consider an honorable Christian man, did to human beings. Um, and so you have to find ways, Wendell Berry talks about this in his book, The Hidden Wound, you have to create this kind of wall between the things that you're saying and hearing and believing when you're in church on Sunday and what you're doing the rest of the week. Because if you actually let some of what's being said in scripture that you're hearing read on a Sunday touch certain parts of your life, it would just be explosive. Um, and so I think that the example of slavery is a really telling one. Um, another example that I've thought about is it's, I don't think I'll ever forget it. I was a um, college student attending a Bible study and we were going through James 1 and the guy leading the study got to the end of the chapter and it's the verse this is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of the father caring for widows and orphans in their distress um that's bible that's james 1 i think verse 25 mm -hmm. it's what christians say is the inerrant infallible word of god given to his people for their good and that's what it says hmm. and the group leader um I mean, this was a, a very wealthy church. Um, 
that was not, there were individuals in the church that were extremely generous, but the church itself kept to itself and used most of its wealth to get really, really awesome sound equipment <laughs> for the worship space on Sunday morning. Like that was the kind of community it was. Um, and the young man leading the study said that, well, we don't have any widows or orphans in our church, which wasn't true anyway. Um, so that just means we need to look out for each other. And it's like, well, no, that's not what that means. And if I tried to play that game with Romans 3.23, you would rightly be on my case for mishandling scripture. Mm -hmm. But when we come to this text that would demand of us to make significant changes in how we live, um, to live in such a way that we really believe an essential part of our religious practice is caring for the poor, um, that's not very convenient if you're a workaholic making tons and tons of money. Um, it's disruptive and we couldn't have that. So you have to kind of hand wave away the verse that says something uncomfortable in order to kind of maintain this truncated Christianity um, within the community. And like the thing that makes me sad about it is that there are, like there were homeless men three blocks from where we were having that Bible study that would have benefited from our charity. Um, but also I think about, I was actually just the other day um, reading Calvin's commentary on the Magnificat because I was curious to see what Calvin does with it. And what Calvin does there, so if you read Mary's prayer at the end of, I think it's halfway through Luke one, this is her prayer that she says when she goes to visit Elizabeth and Elizabeth is already pregnant with John and the baby leaps in her womb. Um, the first person to recognize Christ is an unborn child. Um, and Mary then gives this prayer and she talks about God filling the hungry with good things and lifting up the humble, but um, sending the rich away empty and laying low the proud. And in his commentary on that, Calvin talked about that the reason that she prays in this way is because um, the power and the wealth that these people have keeps them from God, um, which of course is very close to th something Jesus said several times in the gospels. Um, but so it's not just that this kind of accommodated Christianity hurts the people who ought to be recipients of Christian love from church members and churches. It also hurts the Christians themselves because it strengthens us in certain beliefs and practices that are corrosive to our own spiritual health um, and that um, cause the transformative effects of the gospel to not be felt to full effect in our lives. And so it, there's, not a, there's not really anybody that act, actually benefits in a real way from this kind of accommodated Christianity. Um, it hurts everyone, but for the people who are comfortable and powerful and have wealth, it hurts them in terms of their spiritual health and being distracted and well off in America, it's very easy to just go through life ignoring your spiritual health as I think a lot of us do. Um, so, yeah. You use that image that really stood out to me of the wall that somebody, we just have this wall built up, you know, they're going to church on Sunday and there's mm -hmm. this wall between their public life, their outer, you know, their outer life and what they mm -hmm. hear on Sunday, you know, their life through the week. 
what they have on Sunday. How would somebody know if they have that wall? Hmm. Because I can imagine people would hear an illustration like that, maybe watch listen to the podcast or, you know, maybe just in general. And, and maybe they think of other people who they know would probably have that wall, but, but, <laughs> but I don't have that. Yeah. <laughs> that, that. That's not an issue for me. And so. Hey, hey friend, are, you should really listen to this great sermon I heard the other day. It's just <laughs> what you need to hear. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Is there a way that, um, that maybe you can direct us? How, how would we know? Um, well, so one of the things I also thought about when you were asking something earlier about why Christian practice can so often feel very divorced from ordinary love of neighbor on a day-to-day -day basis for us, um, I, I was reminded of the Lord's Prayer, um, where we are instructed to pray that God's will would be done on earth, just as it is in heaven. Hmm. Um, and if you actually think about that, that's a pretty radical thing to pray because God's will is perfectly done in heaven. And to pray that it would be done on earth in that same way, that's intense. Um, but I think it, it's telling that like, when Jesus is teaching us to pray, that's what he puts in there. Um, if you're availing yourself of the ordinary means that God gives his people for their good and their growth in their faith, uh, I think you'll probably have lots of experiences of reading the Bible and the spirit convicts your heart of something, um, praying with God's people and uh, being struck by something. I mean, I, I don't think she'd mind me sharing this. I remember my, my mom when they um, started going, so I left the church that I grew up in in high school. And then in college, I kind of washed up at this, um, PCA like had just recently particularized um, former PCA church plant that was just doing a lot of really, really wonderful outreach on campus. And so my parents were coming from this very fundamentalist background. They'd been in this church for 30 years. Um, there was a certain way you dressed at church. There was a certain way you did everything. And they showed up at church once and I remember my mom telling me about this afterwards. She saw a young man there with bright purple hair and kind of like, oh, I wonder what his deal is. Um, figured he must be some guy who wandered in off the street or something. And it was actually the sound guy. Um, and she saw him get up and go to the front of the room to kind of make sure all the things were working together, like the way the sound system was supposed to work. And then he stopped and prayed for a moment. Um, I don't know what he was praying for. I'd assume that the service would be honoring to God and that people would encounter Christ through the word and song and sacrament. Um, but it was this kind of check for her. Like I, I made these assumptions about this young man based on the way he looked. Um, and then just being in proximity to him and observing him corrected that. Um, so I think there's lots of things where if we're just doing the things we should already be doing as Christians, um, spending time in scripture, spending time in prayer, um, being devoted to the fellowship of our churches, um, hopefully we're going to be given lots of opportunities um, for that kind of um, 
hopefully not kind of scrupulous, but a, a good, healthy kind of introspection and probing our own heart, asking ourselves what things God has for us to learn that we still haven't learned. Um, I think we all have those kind of experiences. Um, but you can structure your day to day life in such a way that you're insulated from them. And I think that's probably especially easy to do now, um, especially as churches become more sucked into the culture war. Our churches are very homogeneous now, and you might not have those kind of experiences that me and my parents did together at that church. And so if, as that happens, I think it will get harder. But I think if you're actually spending time in scripture, scripture cuts. Um, if you're spending time in prayer, God promises to meet you there. Um, and he won't leave you alone because he loves you too much to do that. Um, and so I, I think there's not really any kind of like magical technique that we're given for discerning the places where we need to be called to repentance. Um, it's just the ordinary means of grace that God has used for 2000 years in his church. Yeah, that's really good. That's really good. Jake, one of the things that you talk about in your book is this idea called natural order. And so people that uh, are watching this, listening to this, maybe are reading the book, and that's the first time they've encountered that. Can you unpack what, what is that? And why is it important for Christians as they engage in public life? Mm -hmm. So that's kind of my way of trying to talk about natural law, but in a little bit more expansive way. So natural law is just the idea that there are moral norms that are kind of hardwired into the way the world works. And because of that, um, we can discern what those norms are simply through reason. Um, I can look at the world and using my reason, arrive at some true knowledge about it because it's evident in the way God made the world to work. So Romans one is kind of the classic text that people go to for developing this. Now it's important to note that being able to discern those norms with reason alone is not the same thing as being able to practice them perfectly with reason alone. Um, so it's not some kind of Pelagian thing where it's like we can just reason our way to God. Um, that's not the claim that I'm wanting to make. The claim I'm wanting to make is that God made the world to function in an orderly way. Um, and he has work for us to do within that order and function, um, within that order. Um, and the reason I wanted to spend as much time developing, is, developing it as I did in the book is that I think that the dominant belief that we have in the West right now, um, I've heard Joe Rigney put it this way. He's a um, professor at Bethlehem College and Seminary. He said the, the belief is kind of that the world is Plato. Um, and so I can reshape the world how I want. I can reshape my identity how I want. I can even reshape my own body how I want, um, which could touch things like plastic surgery or um, gender identity. Um, and so because there's not any kind of um internal kind of structure and order to reality um all that i'm left with is well what can i make of reality using my ambition my desire my abilities whatever power i have um 
And there's not a lot of obvious checks on that. And this has um, application on environmental issues. Um, if there's not any kind of um, obligation on us to treat nature in a certain way, then sure, we can do whatever we want to the world if it serves our economic desires. Um, it also, however, has lots of applications that would cut more to the left in terms of how we imagine what the human person is. Um, the, there's a line I, I cited in another um, book that I wrote for IVP um, from Stanley Hauerwas, who says that the kind of modern belief is that I have no story except the story I chose when I had no story. And so as an individual person, everything about my identity is a free-for-all. Um, and what I wanna say in the on both books I've done actually is that's a horrible way to live. Um, that is too heavy a burden for someone to carry on their own. Um, there are all sorts of aspects of who you are that are just given to you at birth given to you through your family, given to you through your place. Um, and the good life to a large degree, now there are places where you know your family can give to you things that are sinful and wrong and have to be repented of. There's things where your nation can give you things that are sinful and wrong and have to be repented of. Um, but to the degree that these things that are given to us, not that we take for ourselves, but are just given to us, to the degree that they align with God's moral law, the good life is anchoring ourselves in those things rather than trying to kind of lift ourselves up over the world and reshape it however we want. Um, there's a quote C.S. Lewis has in The Abolition of Man where he talks about this, that um, for the wise men of old, um, virtue was largely about adjusting one's own self to reality. But for magicians and scientists, or the two groups he talks about in the book, um, the good life is found in being able to lift yourself up above the world and reshape it according to your desire. So I think recovering a really thick sense of there's a natural order here that calls for reverence and deference and um, caution in how we relate to it is really, really important. Um, I mean, for climate change reasons, but also just for kind of existential day-to-day -day reasons that um, if your identity is something you are 100% responsible to create for yourself in every single way, that is going to crush you. Um, I have seen it crush lots of people. I think we live in a nation of people being crushed by that. And so if we can instead say, you are a human being made in the image of God, born to these people in this time and place, in this world, and all of these things contribute to who you are and you don't have to manufacture all of that, um, that can be a really liberating thing. I think it's counterintuitive because we have such a deep commitment to a really, really extreme form of individual freedom that says anything we don't choose for ourselves is a chain. Um, but I think when you actually get down to the brass tacks of how do you live well in the world day to day, that kind of extreme individualism is just incredibly, it's an incredibly heavy burden. And if you can instead look at the world as something made um, with divine intent, 
reflecting divine love that you now get to be part of, um, it resituates the way you understand your own identity and your work and your purpose in the world, or it ought to. Yeah, and so if we if we take that, that natural order, moral law, let's let's use an example that, that you've referenced several times already, politics. You know, obviously, and you've mentioned it a couple of times as we've been talking that that it seems as if Christianity and politics in so many ways has tried we it's tried to be brought together. And, uh, you know, and, and, and the effect that it's had on Christianity has been horrifying. I just wonder, so listening to that, can you unpack for us, what is a uniquely Christian approach to politics? So if we've seen how politics becomes an idol, how politics shapes us more than the gospel, more than Jesus, more than our faith, what is a uniquely Christian approach to it? Um, yeah, so I think the starting point is that I think because of media that we have, like the actual like technology we hold in our pocket, Absolutely. Um, and because of the way we see the world constantly being changed, we can pretty dramatically overestimate our own kind of significance within big picture political stuff. Um, and so I think a lot of the kind of quote unquote politics that Christians get sucked into and involved in, it's very theatrical. Mm. Um, it's very much about kind of signaling a loyal, signaling loyalties and allegiances on social media. And it's very divorced from actual like day-to-day -day life together with neighbors and with church members and with family. And so, the way I would want to really approach it is I'd want to say, well, this is going to start in two places. Um, it's going to start in families. Um, families are the only kind of community that will just organically reproduce themselves. Um, like institutional church communities don't do that. Governments don't do that. Businesses don't do that. All of those things kind of have to get created um, and they can cease to exist. Whereas with families, simply by virtue of husbands and wives living together and fidelity and commitment to one another, that family is going to regenerate itself. Um, and so that makes the family a very unique type of community. Um, and it makes it the first community that people will experience. Um, I think you can also make a pretty good case that to the degree that more and more of our peers and neighbors don't begin their lives in that kind of community. Um, that's a large contributor to a lot of the lack of health in our nation is that there's not that experience of a kind of organic given community uh, marked by love rather than a kind of opportunistic, what can I get from you relationship. Um, so I think the family is a place where a lot of our political life should start rather than thinking about like Washington or even a state capital. Um, and then I think the other place is there's a lot of ways in which the church um, is a place where political life happens. Um, I think this is especially true for celibate people. Um, their lives gesture toward the world to come. Um, their fulfillment is in Christ, not in a relationship with another person. Um, so something I, I talk about in the book at one point is the 
the way that a lot of our culture today thinks about sex is sex is essential to the good life. And so this is why we have like incels as a problem, involuntary celibates, um, because it is felt by them and by a lot of other people that they're being denied some kind of thing that is inextricably tied to living a good life. Um, and what the church has said for the most part over the centuries is that that's not true. Um, you don't need sex for a good life. You can live a good life as a celibate person, uniquely able to be committed to God um, and uniquely able to show to the world um, the goodness of knowing God. Um, St. Ambrose actually says in his treatise on virginity that the celibate life has its source in heaven. Um, and celibate Christians draw the life of heaven down into the world and show it to their neighbors. Um, and so the church becomes this kind of uncommon community um, where, again, we can receive all sorts of benefits of common life, which is ultimately what politics is about. Politics is about organizing our life together in ways that are mutually beneficial and delightful. Um, a lot of that can happen through local churches um, and relationships of trust between local Christians. And I think all of that church family um, is far more foundational to Christian political engagement than is participation in national level politics. Now, that being said, participation in national level politics is not wrong or sinful or bad. Um, there are people that are going to be called to that. Um, living in a democracy, um, we all have some level of influence and access to national level politics, and we can participate in that virtuously or viciously. Um, but for the most part, I think we'd probably be much better off if we were spending less time signaling support for various political causes that we have very little power to accomplish. Um, online and instead seeking to become more rooted in local communities, starting in households and the church, but then hopefully from that base, um, a friend of mine who's part of a radical Anabaptist community, he'll say that um, the stronger the center, the more daring the outreach can be. Mm. So hopefully from a base of strength in households and local churches, if we are strong and secure in those relationships and in those communities, that actually then equips us to be more daring and more faithful and more present um, in our jobs, in our neighborhoods, um, if you're called to it as part of your vocation in politics. Um, so I don't wanna like argue for some kind of withdrawal from politics. I just wanna reframe it um, as if it is actually true that we are made in the divine image. We are made to know God. This is the most important thing about us. Um, and God has ordained for us to live well in these kind of communities. And he's ordained to meet us in the church. Um, I wanna talk about politics as if all of those things are true. Um, and so I wanna start by talking about those things. And then yes, when we get to national politics, there are Christians that are called to that and I'm grateful for them. Um, and I, I pray for them. I pray that God would use um, their gifts to bless the nation, to bless um, whatever level of government they're serving in. Um, and I think he often does. But I think if we lead with that in talking about a Christian relationship to politics, 
we've already defined politics in this really contrived way that's centered around Washington or whatever state capital there is in your place. And the way I actually want to say it is, well, politics is about organizing our life together, which is necessary. Like nobody can sustain their life in the world completely on their own. We have to live in some kind of relationship with other people. And because we have to do that, it, it is good if we can organize that life together in ways that are mutually uplifting. Um, that's the core of what politics is about. And if that's the case, then I wanna start local and reason upward rather than starting at the top and reasoning down, which is how a lot of these conversations happen. Um, is they want to start in Washington, they want to start with the White House, they want to start with the big Senate race or the Supreme Court. And I care about all of those things, but those should not be where we start. Hmm. What a vision. That's so interesting that uh, instead of starting, like I love how you put it, at the top in Washington, national politics, more local, and you're really putting the spotlight on family and the church. And uh, Jack, I want to honor your time. So a part of our audience is pastors and church leaders. And so maybe the, maybe what you just said was just really captivating for them. They'd never heard that kind of vision before. Um, so I would love for you to speak to those pastors and those church leaders. Where could that kind of vision start? What would that look like maybe for them in the local context that they're in or, or how can they even equip their churches to begin to live and think this way? Yeah. I mean, again, I think, I think, we, we shouldn't make this more complicated than it needs to be. There are so many resources in church history that we can draw on to help us with these things. Um, there are tons of kind of liturgical books that presuppose you're praying throughout the day and have pre-written prayers for you to use as you're going about your day. Um, I think one of the things I are, the school unfortunately is no longer open, but our daughter was in a Lutheran um, classical Lutheran school for a short while, and they had morning prayer and chapel at the start of the day every day. And just in that one year she was there, she learned so much Bible hmm. just through the routine of, well, we start the day, we go upstairs, and the rector leads us in prayer and does a couple Bible readings. Um, and it kind of gets into your mind and heart over time, I think, or at least it ought to, if you're engaging it the right way. Um, I think having options for just morning prayer can be a really powerful thing. My wife did a apprenticeship with a farm that the farmer and his wife who ran it were Christians. And he started every morning before they went out into the fields with prayer. And he just used a set form from the Book of Common Prayer. And then at the end of the day before dinner, they would do evening prayer. Um, and it just kind of defined how you went into your work that day. Um, and as you were kind of walking back, so the house we were staying in was about a half mile down the road from the farm. So you're walking that 10 minute walk home after a long, hard day working on the farm. And the last thing that's kind of in your mind is what you were just praying and singing with the family that's running the farm and the other apprentices. Um, I think those kind of habits are formative for people. Certainly that's been the experience that the church has had for a long time. Uh, like I, I remember one of the more interesting things I've read 
um, we have the records. Um, I don't think they've all been published for his whole time there, but we have records of the essentially the board of elders in Calvin's Geneva, um, the meetings they had and the kind of shepherding and church discipline that they were doing in Geneva. And it's funny because if you hear certain people talk about it, you kind of get this picture of like Calvin and the other elders like peering around corners, making sure no one's having fun and then hauling them before the board of elders if they are. Um, but for the most part, that's not what's going on in those consistory records that we have. A lot of it is the, the pastors in Geneva encouraging people to go to church, to memorize the Lord's Prayer, the Ten Commandments, and the Apostles' Creed. Um, it's very basic stuff, mm. but the assumption of Calvin and these pastors in Geneva was these are the ways that God often will work slowly over time in his people to help renew their minds, to deepen their faith in Christ, their commitment to him. Um, and so there's not this kind of like button we can press, which of course is what we want. We want there to be a like foolproof technique, like do these three <laughs> things and X will happen. Yeah. Um, but that's not really how people change. Um, mm. And the, the testament of the church across time seems to be that God has ordained to work in his people for their good through scripture, through prayer, um, through the Lord's Supper. Um, these are the things that God gives us to help draw us to himself. And when you actually spend time in sitting with that, I think it's really powerful. Um, I think it was Calvin would sometimes talk about the idea that the Lord's Supper is actually a foreshadowing of the wedding feast at the end of Revelation. And so when we go to the Lord's table, you're in some sense being caught up into the throne room of God to dine with him. So you could almost say that the kind of idea that like Christ is like bodily present in the way that the Roman church imagines it's coming down to us almost reverses the order. It's not that Christ comes down and now it's his like physical body and blood that we're consuming. It's that we are drawn up to Christ mm. in the supper. Wow. Um, so if you're going to the Lord's supper with the understanding that I am in some sense being taken up into the throne room of God to dine with the King of all things, um, that's a really thrilling and also really sobering thing. Um, it just becomes very easy for it to become ritual. And then you don't really think about what you're doing. But when you actually think about what, what are the things we're claiming when we talk about prayer, when we talk about um, hearing the word of God, um, these are radical, powerful things that God gives us. Um, and then what I would hope would happen is that as people are being shaped by prayer, um, by scripture, by Sunday morning gatherings together, um, the things that God is placing in your mind and in your heart during those times should start kind of niggling at parts of your life as you go about your day and helping you realize this is something I need to repent of. This is an opportunity God's given me to do something good in this part of my life and so on. Um, but for me, I'm just, I would say, good regular prayer routines, good habits of engagement with scripture. Um, and I, I think weekly communion as well would be something like that, something we do at my church here in Lincoln. It's a PCA congregation and we do weekly communion. And 
those things are all incredibly powerful if you give them time and really think about what's happening in those things. Yeah, Jake, that is man, such an encouraging uh, picture and image. Thank you for sharing that. The book is called What Are Christians For? Life Together at the End of the World. And we'll have links to where people can pick it up in the show notes. Uh, now, Jake, before we started to record, you talked about mere orthodoxy, where you contribute. And uh, we would love to hear about it. Share a little bit about mere orthodoxy so people yeah. can know what it is. Um, yeah, mere orthodoxy is a magazine that I serve as editor in chief. Um, the way I've kind of taken to describing it to people lately is that we are committed to being a Christian magazine, trying to say true things about God and his works in a very loud, distracted and ideological world. Um, so less bombast, less culture war, um, more nuance and attempts to listen and engage patiently and carefully. Um, we have some coffee mugs we gave away a year or two ago that said mere orthodoxy defending word counts and nuance on the internet. Um, now also in print, actually, we have a print edition as well. So mereorthodoxy.com, you can see what we're publishing on the web, and we're a quarterly print journal as well. All right, well, that's great. Hey, Jake, thanks so much for taking the time to come Thank on you. today. It's been a pleasure. Jake, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Hey, make sure to check out the show notes. In the show notes, you can find links to pick up Jake's book and links to his website, as well as how to connect with us on social media. Hey, if you're on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, so's the Churchology Podcast. We would love to meet, connect, hear your thoughts on our episodes, and maybe even ideas of people you'd like to hear us talk to or ideas you'd like to help hear us talk about on the show. Let's connect. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, it's all there in the show notes. If you've got a second, share today's episode on social media. And wherever you're listening to the podcast, leave us a review that helps more people find the podcast. Hey, thanks so much for listening to the Churchology Podcast. Podcast.